It is really good to see everybody this morning. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, just making this a priority in in your week to be with us. Uh, As Melody mentioned, we are in a brand new series. And I want to tell you something about this series. Um, I have been wanting to do a series like this for almost a year and a half now, probably actually a little bit longer. And this kind of felt like the the right time to do it. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the four Gospels, one Gospel uh, per per week. And if you've been tracking with us, like I know a lot of you have been, uh, this last year, probably since, especially since um, January, or sorry, um, September, we, I guess you could call this the year of Jesus, <laughs> for Summit. We have taken a deep dive into the life of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the way of Jesus. And the reason for that, we said, we said if, if we are walking into what could potentially be the most polarizing year that any of us have ever um, walked through, well, let's find something that, that is going to unite us. And this has been a polarizing year, for sure. For sure it has been. But we, we were really intentional of saying we, we want to we focus our attention on Christ. And so we want to be people who are practicing the way of Jesus. What is the way of Jesus? Well, then we took a deep dive into the Sermon on the Mount. And we spent, we spent about four or five months walking through Matthew 5 and Matthew, Matthew 6. And then we looked at the big themes of Jesus in the Red Letter Challenge. We did that for six weeks. And we're still hearing some really neat stories about that. And so that's pretty cool. By the way, last week I wasn't here with you. And I, was, uh, I made a trip down to Medicine Hat. And, uh, and, and we did the, we're doing the Red Letter Challenge with a, a church that's in Medicine Hat, Crestwood Church. And so last week was their introduction week. And I just went down there just to kind of kick that church off with the Red Letter Challenge. So thank you for letting me uh, out, of, out of here for that week. But I definitely did miss you guys. Um, sometimes, you know, like you don't know what you have until you're gone, right? And, uh, and that's kind of how I felt last week is like, like beautiful church, amazing people, very friendly, very, very generous. And then I was on my way back and I was like, I got to call Alicia and Melody and Mike. And I'm just like, how did church go? I missed being with our people this last week. And so, yeah, it was, it was good to be there, but it's good to be back as well. And so anyways, all that to be said, I don't even know what I'm talking about right now. Um, We're talking about quartet, four gospels, one Jesus. And we're talking about being focused on Jesus, that we are a people that are practicing the way of Jesus. And we've been in the nitty gritty of Jesus's teaching. And if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to get in in the nitty gritty of something, get in the nitty gritty of, of Christ. Amen? Amen? And so now what we're doing is we're kind of pulling our eyes out of the nitty gritty, and we're going to take a look at the big meta narratives of the Gospels. So I'm, I'm really excited about this because I think some of what you're going to learn over this next uh, four or five weeks, I, I think it's going to surprise you. I think it's going to challenge you. And I think it will aid in our own transformation as we are called to be people like Jesus. Okay, so let's get started. The New Testament opens with four gospel witnesses account of of Jesus. And each of their gospels, they have their own particular theme and their own particular voice and, and perspective. And here's the thing about the gospels. The gospels are not just mere historian, not just a historical account of Jesus. The gospel accounts are are theological 
theologically, um, they're theological documents. And that's really important that we get this. So we don't want to approach the Gospels like we would uh, like with a modern mindset, trying to, trying to gain as much information as we can from these, these uh, documents. They have a theological goal and they have a theological agenda. And as a result, the Gospels do differ from each other in some historical detail. Because the authors are not as much interested in historical detail as they are in a theological reflection. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not just mere biographies, but they are, first of all, theologians. And, and so if you try to synthesize these Gospels to a chronological order uh, and, and event, what will happen is you'll end up sterilizing the message of the Gospels. So this actually has been attempted in, in the past. In the second century, there was a, a theologian, a scholar. His name was Tatian. He was from Syria. And, and he, uh, was a, he was a kind of a strangely uh, modern individual for his time and his, his period, and, but not in the, in the best sense of the word. And so what he would, he would do is he took the four Gospels and he created one Gospel. It's called Harmonizing. And he edited the four Gospels into one. See, he was a little embarrassed by some of the historical discrepancies that are found in, in the Gospels. And so, and so he, he tried to edit it down to one Gospel. And, and the church at this time was led by, was led by an individual named Arrhenius. And, and Arrhenius, I'm really grateful for his leadership. He wisely said, no, 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 we're, 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 not, we're not going to do that. And he rejected the edited version of a one gospel account that didn't have any discrepancies. Because according to Arrhenius, he, he would say that four distinct theological reflections of Jesus is superior than a single edited gospel. So we still have four gospels. And I'm grateful to Arrhenius for that. So three of these Gospels, they're quite similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they are known as the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, they're all very similar to each other. But John, John is his own cat. John is just, he's like at a whole different level. He's thinking at, at a whole different plane than, than you and I would normally think. He breaks all the standard rules. Uh, his gospel, I don't know how to explain it other than to say his gospel is probably more uh, spiritual than the, than the other ones. Uh, he's even more theologically driven than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And remember the account when Jesus, uh, when he clears out the temple, right? So that's kind of the Passion Week. Jesus comes in on riding on the donkey. Everyone says, Hosanna, welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. And then the very next day, Jesus goes into the temple courts and he clears out all the, all the, the people that are selling, all the sacrifices and the animals. And he makes that statement that my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves, right? So that's in the last week of Jesus's life. John's like, I'm going to put that at the front end of my gospel. Yep, that's in chapter two. So, he, so you're kind of like, what's going on here? Well, he, he, what John does, he even puts Jesus' death on a different day. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus' death on the day after the Passover lamb was sacrificed. But John moves it to the day of the Passover lamb when the Passover lamb was sacrificed because he opens the gospel by saying that Jesus Christ is the lamb who takes the sin of the world away. And he wants to connect those two images. Why? Because he's theologically motivated. And if you're a modern person, that might bother you. I'm going to suggest don't let it. Don't let it bother you. 
They are inspired theologians working by the Holy Spirit, giving us different messages in different ways that if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, we're going to get so much more out of the gospel accounts if we approach it as if we were to approach the gospels as a mere historical document. So, as Mel said earlier, let's begin with the Gospel of Mark. Why the Gospel of Mark? Because the Gospel of Mark was the first gospel that is written, and it's clearly used as a template for Matthew and Luke. And they add some of their own material in there. But who was Mark? Mark, uh, tradition and scholarship would tell us uh, that this is the character known as John Mark, who appears uh, not so much in the Gospels, but more in the book of Acts. And in the time of Jesus, he was a very young man. Probably he was a, he was a teenager. And his mother lived in Jerusalem. His mother is known as Mary, not the Mary that we all think of, but uh, there's, there was lots of Marys in first century. And so they all get a little confusing. But um, his mother was one of the benefactors that... Uh, financed and funded Jesus's ministry. Mark, John Mark, Mark uh, became a traveling companion with Paul and Barnabas later on. But what history tells us is that, is that Mark was the interpreter for Peter. Mark is fluent in Greek. Peter was not fluent in Greek. And so in some ways, you can think of uh, Mark as Peter's gospel. This is the account of Jesus from Peter through Mark. And it was written in Rome after the death of Peter. Uh, Peter died in Rome at 64, in 64 AD, about 30 years after Christ. And so after his death, Mark said, we need to put some of what Peter told me and the accounts of Jesus down onto paper. And so, so he wrote this gospel probably around uh, about four or five years after Christ's death. Most scholars would say between 69 and 70, 71 AD is when this gospel was written. The theme in Mark, this is really important. The theme in Mark is immediately, 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 immediately right? 41 times in this letter, he uses the word immediately. 11 of those times is in the first chapter. Now, the explanation that has always been given to me is the reason why Mark uses this word so much is that Mark is in Rome, and he's writing to the church in Rome, and, and the, part of the Roman psyche is this admiration for people of authority, people that get things done. And so constantly in Mark, Jesus is going from here, and he's, he's healing this person, and then immediately he goes over here, and he's taking care of this situation, and immediately he goes over here, and he's having this confrontation with, with these people over here, and just reading Mark 1 is exhausting. So even though it's 40 years after Jesus' life, it's the first of this document that is produced, and there's this breathless pace to this story. It's, it's fast. It's, it's engaging. And Mark, the way that he writes, he writes as if um, he was there in the story. He writes in the present tense. It's a, it's a literary device that is used to kind of draw you into the story. So the way, even though it's 40 years after Christ, the way that Mark writes, he's, he's saying, so we're, we're in the sea and 
and, and the waves are arising all around us. And we think that the boat is going to capsize and Jesus is sleeping and, and we're freaking out. And so we got to go down. We got to wake Jesus up. And then translators, they come later on and they say, uh, this, we want to make this more of a historical document. So we got to smoothen out this language here. But he intentionally writes it in the, in the present tense to draw you into the story if you're reading it in the original Greek. So let's take a look at the chapter. If you have your Bibles, you're going to need them for this series. Series, okay, I would really recommend bringing a Bible. If you don't have a Bible you, and you have one on your phone, so open up your phone and we're going to look at Mark 1, verse 1. I think everything is on the screen. I know our online, our online people, we did have some tech issues this morning, so you're not going to be able to see the slides. So I would encourage you, if you are online watching us, grab your Bible and you're not going to see the lyrics on the screen, uh, but grab your Bible and follow along with us. And we're going to start in Mark 1.1. And this is how Mark begins this gospel. He says, this is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, let's pause. This is the first line that is written. This is the first line that is written of a document that is produced of this kind. It's the opening statement about who Jesus is. Now, you might be sitting here 2,000 years later, and you've heard this kind of phrase before, and you think, that is my bland, and this is a harmless way of opening up a letter. And that's not what's going on here. Here, let me just unpack this a little bit. This is the good news. That's what gospel means, right? We know that. This is the good news. The Greek for that is euangelo. This term was used as an empirical decree, something that Caesar would use to make an announcement that comes from the emperor's throne. So, so take a look at the title that Mark ascribes to Jesus. He says, he is the son of God. That's an imperial, imperial title. It's the title of Caesar. Re remember, he's writing this in Rome to the Roman church. So just consider this. This is, this is the kind of language that was used to describe Caesar. This was found, archaeologists, they found this in 9 BC in Turkey, in Asia Minor, which was a Roman colony at the time. This is just a few years before Jesus was born. They found, archaeologists, they found an inscription that said this. I think it's on the screen here. The birthday of the god Caesar Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel. Therefore, let all recognize a new era beginning from his birth. So it's into this world, it's into this language that is being used, that Caesar has come, a new era has begun, and this Caesar is not just a mortal individual, it's not just mere human, but this Caesar is, is divine, he is God, and so let us all recognize him as such. So when, when Mark starts his gospel by saying that Jesus is the son of God, it would sound like this to his readers. It would say that this is the imperial proclamation of Jesus Christ, the true son of God. Remember, he's writing in Rome to the church in Rome and the Caesar is sitting on his imperial throne just a few blocks away from where he's writing this. What Mark is doing right from the very beginning is he's throwing down the gauntlet. And this is a challenge to Rome. This is a challenge to principalities and powers that exist all over the world. That's a true emphasis of, of Mark's gospel that Jesus is challenging the kingdom of Satan. That's a dominant theme that comes out in, in, in Mark's gospel. I'll just say this. If you have a hard time with the personification of evil 
being known as Satan, you're going to have a hard time in the gospel of Mark. You are confronted with, with the individual Satan many times. Jesus, he's challenging the kingdom of Satan. And Jesus is the strong one that is binding the strong man and plundering his house. That's how Jesus used, uh, describes his own ministry. Take a look in Mark chapter 3. It says this, Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger than someone could tie him up and then plunder his house. Well, what Jesus is saying, you think Satan is strong, I'm stronger. And then he says he's a house invader. It's kind of this mini parable that Jesus gives to, gives to us. He says, you have this guy that is strong and, and he has got goods in his house because he's strong and no one's going to confront him. But now you have a stronger man than that strong man and that stronger man invades that house, overpowers the original strong man and then plunders his valuables. And that's Jesus. And the idea is that the world has become the house of Satan and Satan is powerful and no one can bind him and Satan keeps his goods secure. So um, what are the goods? People. And the people are locked in his house and can't get out because Satan is too strong. But Jesus comes in because he is stronger than the strong man. And Jesus invades the house and he binds the strong man and he sets the captives free. And it's kind of a crazy parable when you think about it. Jesus is casting himself up as a violent burger, burglar who breaks into a house, ties up a guy, and runs off with his stuff. And we're the stuff that Jesus runs off with. Amen? <laughs> Let's look at some of the confrontations that Jesus has in this gospel. Um, there's more confrontations with the demonic than any other gospel. It's a big theme in Mark. So let's take a look. Mark chapter 1, and I'm just going to read um, verse 21 to 28. So Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went to the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit began shouting, shouting, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus cut him short. Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened? What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It has such authority. Even the evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. So Jesus is invading the house of the strong man, Satan, in order to plunder that house. And in his ministry, Jesus is displacing the strongholds of Satan. And, and surprisingly, this first confrontation that we have is found in a synagogue. And Jesus goes into the synagogue on, on a Sabbath and is confronted by a man with a, a demon. And, and a battle is about to ensue that at its core is all about power and control. So what's, what's a synagogue? Think, think of a local church. It's, it's local. 
It has congregants. It has a pastor, or they would call it a president, or some, sometimes different synagogues would have what's called a, a scribe. And, and it, what happened in Jesus' days is that the function of the synagogue had changed. It was supposed to be a place of healing. It was supposed to be a place of, of, of refuge, but it became a, a source of power and they ruled over people. And instead of being a house of liberty, it became a, a place of, of bondage. And remember what Jesus says to them, you load, he's talking to the religious leaders, right? He's saying, you load people with, with heavy burdens and you won't so much as lift a finger to help them. So what was supposed to be a place of freedom turned into a place of bondage. And, and the leaders of this place, they were using their position not to help and not, not to help heal other people, but to control and dominate. And so Jesus, in this confrontation of the demonic spirit, is, is all about control and abuse that is happening in this place of worship. So who is the man that is, that is possessed with this demon that is in the synagogue? I can't prove it to you. But what is suggested is that it's the synagogue leader. It's the pastor. <laughs> it's the president or, or the scribe. And, and this demon recognizes that Jesus is a threat to his control and says, what are you doing here? Why have you come here? I know who you are. Have you come to destroy us? What's the answer to that? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, if you understand what the us is, Jesus did not come to destroy the man. He came to destroy the spirit. It's what John says in his first epistle. He says that the son of man would come to destroy the works of the devil. And so Jesus has come to destroy the spirit, not, not the man. And this is so important to Mark that, that we get this, that the man in the synagogue has been unharmed. And at the same time, he was liberated and he was set free. And the spirit of abuse and control had been cast out of him. But the man, the individual, was set free. And how does Jesus do that? He uses his words. Remember in, in Revelation, you have this image of Jesus coming back. And it's, it's the final battle. And it says that Jesus is on a horse and he's, he's coming with the sword. And, and where is that sword? It's in his mouth, not in his hand. Jesus doesn't go into this church to attack the leader, but he goes in to liberate him. And, and the people around were amazed and his reputation spread because he had authority. And in one of the big ways that we see that Jesus exercising his authority is by his teaching. See, most teachers of the day would say this. They would say, it is written, and then they would teach. And, and, and we know this because we just walked through this in September, October, November, December, that whenever Jesus says it is written, then he would add on something. Do you remember what that is? No? Yeah? But I say to you. So he, he references the Torah, he references the law, and he says, but I say unto you. And when he does that, all of a sudden, all the pressure is on the listeners. Who are you to say that to me? Who is this person? And then he would back up his teachings with these miracles and with these confrontations. See, Jesus doesn't have to use the word of God because he is 
the word of God. Amen? That's what you see in John 1.1. He doesn't have to just quote the word of God. He is the word of God. And so he speaks with his own authority. And, And with this authority, he speaks and demons flee. He speaks the word and people are set free from demonic power. This is the reason why his fame spreads so quickly. There's another time he enters the synagogue. It's in chapter three. And don't worry, I'm not going to go through this chapter by chapter. I'll get you out here in time. But I want to show you this, okay? In verse one, and just starting in verse one, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed the man with a deformed hand. And since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. See what they wanted to do? They wanted to accuse him. Um, what does the, 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 the word, the name Satan, what does that mean? The accuser, right? The, the accuser. So to accuse is actually to, to Satan. So whose influence are the religious leaders under in this passage? Probably not God's. Whose spirit are they operating by? Probably not God's. What what Mark is telling us is that the religious leaders of the day, that they're they're wanting to to Satan Jesus. Just let that sink in for a moment. That's quite a statement. Religious leaders wanted to Satan Jesus. Jesus. So by this time, Jesus had been healing all across the land and he had um, built up a reputation and crowds are following him. And he, and he comes to church. Let's just make this personal here. He comes to church and there is a man that is in church with a, with a withered hand and all eyes are on Jesus. What is Jesus going to do with this man? It's on, on a Sabbath and there's this tension and there's this drama that Mark wants us to feel. And so, so Jesus says to the man, uh, come here at where, where everyone can see. And, and he's not hiding this. He's not, he's not afraid, right? He's going to call out injustice once again. And remember, the synagogue was a place to be a, a place of healing and liberation. And it had turned into a place of, of power and control and politics and manipulation. And so he asks them a question and pick it up in, in verse four. So he calls them out. He says, stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics, the ones that were wanting to accuse him and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy life? <laughs> but they went and answer him. <laughs> I love that. What's the right answer to that question? Obviously, it's, it's a day to save life. And, and they know what it is. But they weren't going to answer, answer him. They stayed silent. So he looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. And he said to the man, hold out your hand. And so the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Here's the interesting thing about that. The Herodians and the Pharisees, they're enemies. Traditionally, enemies. They would not stand one another. But um, now these enemies had a a common, and how does that that statement go? Um, The enemy of my enemy is my friend right? 
So that's kind of what just happened. They found a common enemy, and now they became friends and because this common enemy was going to challenge their, their power. And this is Mark. He wants his readers, he wants us to know that there is always a tension. There is always a battle. There is always a subversive storyline to what is going on. It's why he actually has a common refrain throughout the gospel. He says, let, ears, let those who have ears to hear, let them listen. Those who have eyes to see, let them see. I want to give you one more passage by what I, I, that explains what I mean by this. If you go to Mark 5, and the, there is this epic account where Jesus is battling the demonic once again. And this isn't in a synagogue. It's not in a church. In a rare moment in Jesus' ministry, he leaves Israel. He leaves where he sets up most of his, sets up shop and most of his ministry. And he crosses the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And he takes that trek on a boat across the sea, which is not really that big of a trek. It's only about five miles to go across the Sea of Galilee. And he ends up in, in foreign territory. So he, and, and so the disciples, you can just kind of imagine the disciples being like, we are in Gentile territory. Why, why, why are we here? But not only are they in Gentile territory, he goes into the place of the dead. <laughs> so for Jews, that's a big deal, right? And they're like, well, this is unclean. Jesus, why are we here? This is the place of the dead. And, and, and what scripture says, if you read it in verse three, is that they come across a very strong man and no one can bind him. Does that sound familiar? I think we just talked about what the purpose of Jesus' ministry was. So John, you can see that John's wanting to get a point across. They come across a very strong man and no one can bind him. He's filled with demons and Jesus addresses this man and he says, what's your name? What's the response? What's the name of that man? Legion. Legion. That, that should tip you off right now. That, that should tip you off that there's something else that's, go, that's going on. Legion is a, is a reference to Roman occupiers. It's a military term. It, it would be like me saying to you, uh, what's your name? And you would say, the Royal Canadian Air Force. <laughs> Right? You'd be like, oh, okay, what are you really saying? It's connected to military stuff. And then the passage goes on to say that there was a herd of pigs that was nearby. And, and th this is absolutely fascinating, guys. I was, um, was talking to the staff about this. I just learned this as I was putting this message together. I was absolutely riveted by, by this. A herd of pigs was an insult that was used by the Jewish people when the Roman legions would march through their towns. So you have this foreign occupiers that would march through their towns and the locals, the Jewish people, would, wouldn't say it loud enough for them to hear, obviously, but they would mutter under their breath and they would say, there goes the, there goes the herd of pigs, the legion. Somebody needs to do something about them. This herd of pigs... They just came into our town. They sullied our town. So I, I think when you see it in this light, it really kind of shifts the story, what, what's going on. So, so Jesus does what he, he does um, 
what he is called to do, and he confronts this. And, and he does what he, a Messiah is to do. He, he goes to war, because that's what a Messiah is supposed to do. A Messiah is supposed to liberate the people, right? But everyone wants, everyone wants the Messiah to fight for them, and so he goes to war. But how he does it is in a way that we see in, in chapter 1, is that he speaks, his, he speaks words. He commands the legion to leave the man and to go into the pigs. And, and what do the pigs do? They, they run off a cliff and into the sea, and they are drowned. The pigs die. Poor pigs. Think about that for a second. You've heard that story before, right? The foreign enemy that drowns in a sea. We, we know that. We know that story, right? We, it has a familiar ring to it, that the enemy of Israel drowns in a, in a sea. Go back to the Old Testament, book of Exodus, Red Sea. We have another Moses on our hand who was Moses. In those days, Moses was in bond. Moses, in the days of Moses, Israel was in bondage and there was a strong man called Pharaoh and no one could liberate them because Pharaoh was strong. And here comes Moses confronting Pharaoh filled with the spirit of God, speaking the word. And Moses comes as the strong man that is stronger than Pharaoh. And he rescues those that are in bondage. And when the enemy pursues them, they are drowned in the sea. And so this is what Jesus is doing. But there's a big difference because what Moses did resulted in the Egyptian soldiers getting killed. And who's getting killed in this story? Nobody the demons and, and, and the pigs, but no people. The man who had the legion is safe. He is clothed. He is of sound mind. But in fact, what does this man want to do? This, this man wants to follow Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He says, no, it's not time for that yet. It's not time for you to, to follow me. And it's actually, it's a foreshadowing that events um, that the Gentiles are under the demonic persuasion of Rome. They're going to want to follow Jesus. And, and actually what Jesus does with this man is he sends him into his own people as probably the first missionary of, of Jesus. We kind of attribute that to Paul. It's probably this man right here. I don't know about you. I, I think this is good stuff. I think this is amazing. I kind of get excited when I, I learn about this, when I, when I see, like with, with Mark, there is this that is going on, but there's also that. It's a this and a that, right? There is a this, and he's going to exp explain it, and he's going to tell the story, but every story that Mark talks about and he shares, there's a that, the subversive storyline, that those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Those who have eyes to see, let them see. Okay, last one, almost done. Ah, uh, I have, I'm out of time. Can I give you one more? One more, I gotta do, I gotta finish this off, okay? I gotta finish this off, I'm sorry. Okay, the climax of Mark is the cross. And, and there's only eight verses that are given to the resurrection, but he spends most of his letter in, in the week um, leading up to the cross. And remember the opening line of Mark, right? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So Mark begins with the baptism of Jesus, not with the birth of Jesus. And in the very first few verses, we're told that he is the son of God. And this is a tension that is felt all the way through the, um, 
the book of Mark until we finally get to the crescendo of Mark, which is at the cross. And there's a certain figure at the cross that we need to address. So that is in uh, Mark 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse 39. Let me read this to you. Uh, when the Roman officer, so get this, where is Mark writing this from? Rome. Who's he writing it to? The church in Roman. So when the Roman officer who stood facing him, Jesus, saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. What a powerful image right there that Mark unfolds for us. A soldier uh, that is standing with a spear in hand and is uh, regaled in his armor and, and used to subjugate their, their opponents. He confesses and says that this is the, truly this is the son of God. It's a powerful image and it really is prophetic. But, but what does this mean for you and and me. Let me just finish off with, with one thought. We all, um, we all want to change the world. And inevitably, when we try to change the world, we, caught up trying to, we, we get caught up trying to use the strategies of the world. And, and because that's the most pragmatic way to make change, right? Um, but that way, it, uh, what Jesus shows us is that that way always leads to violence. And Jesus come, overcomes violence, not with violence. His response to the violent occupation of the Roman Empire, he responds to it not with violence because violence is demonic. You can't overcome violence with violence. That's demonic. That's what Jesus shows us. So he does something else. He speaks his word. And, and when he speaks, his words have power to displace the powers that be. So our job, and this is, this is the take home for us, our job is not to try to change the world. Our task is to preach Christ crucified and let him change the world. Our task is to go up to the Roman soldiers, as it were, and proclaim Jesus Christ crucified because it's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, and he's speaking of his crucifixion, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So if we're going to change the world, we proclaim it by Jesus Christ crucified. Amen? Stand with me. You have um, your uh, communion cups. And, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to close off. I think it is very appropriate to close off in communion with these cups. I have a, we have a liturgy that we use here uh, as we approach communion. And I, let's read this liturgy. Let's read this together. If you don't have a, a communion cup, you can just, there's some on the back here, and I think there's some on the sides. But if you can just take it, and how you do the communion cups is you just peel the little cellophane off the top. There's a cracker there, and then you'll be able to drink from un underneath. But let's read this communion liturgy together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. This is the table, not of the church, but of Jesus Christ. It is made ready for those who love God and want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here for a long time or ever before, you, have, you who have tried to follow and all of us have failed. 
These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come not because the church invites you. It is Christ who invites you to be known and fed here. Let's eat the cracker that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us on the cross. And then peel back the silver part here for the juice and let us drink the juice together as we remember the blood that was shed for us that exclaimed and put an exclamation mark that Jesus is the conquering king. Let us drink together. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can put our trust in you, that you are the strong one who binds up the strong one, invades his house, plunders it, and sets us free. And you showed us how you did this in your ministry by the words that you said. And you said that all authority has been given to you. And in virtue, you have given us that authority and we are to go and make disciples. And so would we recognize the authority that we have been given to us was given by you, the one who possessed all authority in heaven and on earth. We confess you are our Lord. We confess you are our Savior. And we pray that we would be a people that holds to both and obeys all that you ask us to do. In your name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great week. And we'll see you next week as we look at the Matthew Gospel.